Let's pray together. Lord, we recognize and freely admit this morning that none of us can offer you counsel, none of us can fully comprehend your plan, none of us have received anything that we might give to you, Lord, that you might owe us. So, Father, we pray that we would humble ourselves this morning, that we would understand that you are creator and we are creation, that you are the one who has planned salvation from before the foundation of the world, accomplished it in Christ and applied it through the work of your Holy Spirit, and we may only be the recipients of grace. And so, Lord, may we glory in that this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. We're in Luke 5 this morning, verses 33 through 39. Rusty read it for us earlier. C.S. Lewis wrote about what he called chronological snobbery. He defined it as the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate common to our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that account discredited. If something has gone out of date, it is thereby, by default, discredited. And we see this pretty prevalent today in our culture, in our society. Whatever is new must be true, even if it contradicts what I affirmed even yesterday. We face, though, I think a similar danger in the opposite direction. Whatever is old must be preserved. And that is the situation that Jesus finds himself confronting in Luke chapter 5. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, even many in the crowd have an inability to see that what Jesus is bringing is new and fresh, yet they prefer the old. We've been walking through the book of Luke, one paragraph or two paragraphs at a time, and so we've seen that the opposition to Jesus is increasing. This passage we're looking at this morning is the third of five encounters, and slowly but surely the opposition to Jesus gets greater and greater, particularly from the scribes and the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of the day. We saw that earlier in Luke they were disgruntled because Jesus claimed that he is God in the flesh and that he has the authority to forgive sins. In fact, his ability to heal is demonstrated so that we might believe that he can forgive sins. They didn't like that. The scribes and Pharisees understood that only God can forgive sins, and if Jesus is claiming to be able to forgive sins, he is claiming to be God. Then we saw that they were complaining about who Jesus was associating with. He was calling to himself a tax collector, Levi, better known as Matthew. He was dining, reclining at table with tax collectors. And so the Pharisees and the scribes begin to grumble. And this just escalates and escalates until it boils over in Luke chapter 6, verse 11, where Luke writes, but they were filled with fury in disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. The opposition is moving from from simple thoughts of disagreement to grumbling to protesting 
and then to resolving, how can we stop Jesus? So what is, what is the source that's causing their re- rejection? What are they uncomfortable with? Well, it's mainly and primarily Jesus' claim to be the Messiah, sent from God, to save sinners from their sin. In fact, in our passage, Jesus claims that he is such a significant figure that his very presence and his mission change everything. And we see it with fasting here. The first point in the first few verses there, the presence of Jesus does away with old practices like fasting. Look back in verse 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So the crowd that has been following Jesus Hearing his teaching, seeing him heal even the paralytic, they have questions. This crowd consists of religious leaders like scribes and Pharisees. It consists, if we, if we look at other gospels' account, of some of the disciples of John the Baptist, and it consists of those who are eager to learn from Jesus. And so they have questions, questions about why Jesus' disciples act different in terms of fasting. The Pharisees and and the disciples of the Pharisees, they fast. They abstain from food on Mondays and Thursdays. And so why, why don't the disciples of Jesus fast? The disciples of John fast. There seems to be some kind of, uh, of continuity. If you look at the Pharisees and disciples of John, the Pharisees fast. The disciples of John, who is the forerunner of Christ, they fast. And it feels like Jesus is breaking this continuity. There's a break. There's a disruption. And they, they can't understand what is going on. Now, we said fasting is, is abstaining from food and even drink for a, a time, for a season. In the Old Testament... There were many times and and many ways that people fasted. Sometimes fasting was meant to demonstrate mourning. Think of the Babylonian captivity as a time where fasting would have been appropriate. Sometimes it was an anticipation of a future event, maybe some kind of deliverance from captivity. Sometimes fasting demonstrated remorse over sin. So you see different examples in Scripture of fasting, but only one fast was required for Israel, and that was on the Day of Atonement. This was to demonstrate their mourning over sin. And so no work was to be done, and they were to fast from food on that day. But what happened was that that there was... uh, Fasting became a way for the Pharisees to demonstrate how, how pious they were. The Pharisees, or the Pharisee in the temple in Luke 18, he prayed, thank you that I fast, unlike this guy, unlike the tax collector. He fasted twice per week, he boasted. So Jesus warned his, ear, his hearers, 
When you're fasting, don't make a big deal about it. Don't, don't make yourself look anemic because you are fasting. Don't go about saying, do you, do you hear that? That's my stomach rumbling because I've been fasting for the last three days. Fasting had become an outward symbol of devotion to the Lord. It was right up there with the, the big three, praying, giving of alms to the poor, and fasting. Man, the, the Pharisees nailed this, and they did it very publicly and very outwardly so that everybody might know how pious they are. And so the accusation then is that Jesus and the disciples of Jesus lack necessary piety. They lack necessary adherence to this Tradition of fasting. The disciples of Jesus, they eat and drink. Now remember in context, the religious leaders have just confronted the disciples of Jesus for eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. So this is, this is a throwback to that paragraph. Not only do they eat and drink and they don't fast, they eat and drink and party with sinners and tax collectors. So that's the question. Why does Jesus lack this piety in his disciples? And Jesus answers in verse 34, and it's essentially this. There's a time for fasting, but this isn't it. There's a time for fasting, but this is not the time. And so he makes the point with an illustration in the form of a question, do you fast when the bridegroom is present? Can you make wedding guests fast at an event that's meant to be a celebration and a party? When Roy and McKenna got married, I gave them some very important advice. And don't be disappointed if you didn't follow this advice. This is just what I tell couples about to be married. Do not make the guests wait to eat while you take photos afterwards. (laughs) Because nobody wants to fast at a wedding. Nobody should be fasting when there's a wedding cake on the table. And so Jesus, though, he he actually doesn't tie it to, like, there's wedding cake. He ties it to the presence of the groom. The groom is with them. He is present. And so, therefore, this is not a time to fast There's no mourning that needs to happen. There's no anticipation. There's no lament. This is a time for celebration and joy because they are in the presence of Jesus. So much of fasting in the Old Testament, as we said, was pleading and waiting and mourning until deliverance would come for God's people. And now, in Christ Jesus, the deliverer is present. He's there. He's with them. He has come to accomplish his mission to rescue and to deliver his people from their sins. In the presence of the groom, in the presence of God's Son, in the presence of the deliverer, there is no need to fast. Fasting becomes unnecessary. We see with this language that Jesus is making some absolutely stunning statements, similar to what he made when he said that he had the authority to forgive sins. The groom is here. The bridegroom has arrived, so you shouldn't fast. Well, the Pharisees and the religious leaders particularly would have understood this imagery that God himself is the groom. And Jesus is saying, I've, I've come. 
In Hosea chapter 2, verse 16, God said, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And in verse 19 of chapter 2, he says, And I will betroth you to me forever, and I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Jesus saying that, that in him, I, the, the Lord has come. He is the groom who has come to win his bride. For the disciples of Christ, then, they are in the presence of the bridegroom. And so fasting is not necessary now, but in verse 35, there will come a day. There will come a day when fasting becomes necessary again. You see, Jesus, Jesus did not outright reject the idea of fasting. Fasting is good and right at the proper time, and that time would come, Jesus says. So the question that we, we ask as we read this text is, what is the time? And the text says the time is when the bridegroom is taken away. And it, it, it's maybe missed on us initially, but what an ominous turn in the story here. You've got the groom, and he's present, and there's a party, and then the groom is taken away. The groom is no longer in their presence. Now, this is obviously a reference to the death of Christ. In fact, Isaiah 53 describes the death of Jesus just that way, that he will be taken away. And it says he will be cut off from the land of the living. So you know that it's talking about the death of Jesus. We saw in chapter 2 sort of an anticipation that there would be something that's, that's going to happen in the life of Jesus that's going to pierce the soul of Mary. And here now you have the words of Christ himself alluding to his own death. The groom is going to be taken away. The disciples won't be in the presence of the groom. And there will be a time for fasting. Jesus would go on to speak of his death quite often, but it would still come as a surprise to the disciples and to the followers or to the ones who were following him. It didn't seem possible that Jesus could die. How could the deliverer, how could the groom, how could he die? How could he be taken away? But we know that this is God's good plan from before the foundation of the world. This was the mission. This becomes the means of winning his bride, the means of deliverance. But when he's taken away, in those days, fasting will return. So again, Jesus isn't rejecting the practice. If you remember, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness... In Luke chapter 4, he was found fasting. He's simply making the point that when the groom is here, fasting is not a practice that should be going on. So, then again, the, the question becomes, as we wrestle with this text, how long will fasting return when the groom is taken away? Or if you look at verse 35, you might ask it this way, what does the days, the days will come? What are the days? Well, certainly it refers to the days between the death and resurrection of Christ. 
Certainly this would have been a time of mourning and even anticipation if they would have understood that Jesus was going to come back to life. When Jesus comes back to life, he, he shares a meal with the disciples. He reveals himself to them. But I don't think the days are just a reference to those few days there. Because we also see after the ascension of Christ to the right hand of the Father, after the giving of the Spirit, we find the early church in the book of Acts fasting. So what gives? If fasting is a time of mourning or it's a time of anticipation, what gives? How are we to understand this passage? We have the Spirit that lives within us, which is called in the New Testament even the Spirit of Christ. We rejoice in the forgiveness of our sins. We're not necessarily mourning. So are we in those days or are we not? And the answer you'll be glad to know is yes and no. The reality is we live in the in-between, between the first and second coming of Christ. Christ has risen and he has saved us and he has gifted us with the Holy Spirit to indwell us, yet we long, we still long for the day of our full restoration where we are fully in the presence of Jesus Christ. We groan inwardly, Paul says. We groan as we await the return of Christ. In fact, Peter's preaching in Acts 3. He says this, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Why? That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you. Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. So we don't fast in, in mourning, but we can fast in anticipation of that great day when Christ returns to restore all things. And part of that restoration is that the, the groom takes his bride, the bride of Christ, who has been purified in Revelation 19, been given white linens in Revelation 19, bright and pure, and in the presence of the groom, there will be no more fasting, no more need, no more anticipation, no more mourning, because we are with Christ forever. And so I think we could sum up then the, the application of these first couple, first three verses in two words, rejoice and anticipate. Rejoice and anticipate. As those who live in the in-between, between the first and second coming of Christ, we rejoice in the accomplishing of our salvation, while at the same time anticipating the full reward, the full manifestation of the presence of Christ. So we rejoice in the blessings of salvation. And the Pharisees, they, they told, this is what they missed. They missed it. They missed it because they were, they were fasting, they were mourning, they were anticipating, and Jesus saying, the thing you're anticipating is right here. I've come. I am right before your eyes. There's no need for you to mourn. They, were, they, they should have been rejoicing. And I know for us that, that this world is not what it is supposed to be, and it seems like things are getting crazier every day, but we need to rejoice 
that we've moved from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. That, that we can say like John, behold, what manner of love is this, that we've been called children of God, sons of God. We've been given the Holy Spirit as a, as a down payment, as a guarantee of our salvation. We've been credited with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. We've been promised an inheritance that will not fade. We've been empowered, empowered to love and obey God. We should ponder then all these different aspects of the gospel, what Christ has accomplished for us, and we should rejoice in that. They talk about the different facets of a diamond. It's caught up and it's got all these angles and you can peer at a diamond from all these different angles and see the light reflected different ways. And Man, we ought to consider the gospel that way. As we think about our adoption, as we think about our justification, as we think about the freedom we have from the penalty of sin, freedom from the power of sin, the hope of eternal glory, we we, we think and we ponder the greatness and the glory of the gospel and we rejoice. Yet we also know that the world is not what it was in Genesis 1 and 2. The world is not what it will be in Genesis 19, 20, 21, 22. The world is not what it will be, so we not only rejoice, we anticipate. We anticipate being with Christ. And that's really the, the point of this passage the point of verses 33 through 35 anyways. It's not primarily about how much we should fast, when we should fast, what's, what is fasting. Fasting becomes the, the, basically the conversation starter about the presence of Jesus. It forms the basis of the discussion, but it's not the main thrust. So we can fast today. The Bible doesn't give specific times or requirements for fasting. It's commended as good, and we, we pray during times of fasting, and we anticipate the return of Christ, but the passage is focused on the presence of Jesus. And so we see this. The presence of Jesus determines our fasting. One writer said it this way, all fasts are preparation. Marriage is the fulfillment. All fasts are preparation. Marriage is the fulfillment. So we're right to anticipate. We're right to long for. We're right to pray for. We're right to even fast in anticipation of the coming of Christ because we live in the in-between. So as God's son, his very presence changes whether we fast or not the necessity of something like fasting is determined whether he is present or not and so it's clear then that Jesus is claiming to be something more than a prophet like Elijah or Elisha or even John the Baptist he's claiming to be something more than a religious teacher and so then he moves to kind of drive home this point with three metaphors or Luke calls them parables we see those in verses 36 through 39 He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. 
but new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one after drinking old wine desires, desires new, for he says the old is good. So if you keep notes, if you have your sheet in front of you, that's point number two. The new way of Jesus is incompatible with the old. Luke calls these parables. They're not exactly what we typically think about when we hear of a parable. We might think of the Good Samaritan. We might think of the prodigal son. But the word parable can be used to mean any type of figures of speech, including extended metaphors and proverbs, which is what we have here. Two pictures, extended metaphors, and a proverb. We see that each one of these, we say there's three, each one is introduced with the phrase, no one. No one does this, no one does this, no one does this. You can see it there if you look in verse 36, no one. In verse 37, no one. And in verse 39, no one. So we've got three pictures that Jesus is going to give us here. The first parable is, a, is about patching an old garment. Before Cole's cash was a thing... It would have been necessary to repair old clothes instead of going and buying new ones. And so Jesus uses a little bit of irony here. He uses a little bit of humor to make his point. And here's the point he's making. Imagine you have an old, worn-out, nasty pair of jeans, and you get a hole in those jeans, and it's time. It's time to retire them, guys. It's time to retire those jeans. But you think, you know what, I'm going to repair them. So you go to your Kohl's bag, and you pull out a brand new pair of $80 jeans, and you think, I know what I'll do. I'll cut the new jeans, and I'll get a little piece of cloth so I can repair my old nasty jeans that need to be repaired. And so Jesus' metaphor, his picture, is that you can't cut up the new pair of jeans to fix the old pair of jeans because you end up just destroying both pairs of jeans. The mixture of old and new is destructive to both. It cannot be done. The result is damage to the old and damage to the new. To mix the old with the new destroys both the old and the new. The double loss that Jesus points out is that the new garment is destroyed and the old garment doesn't match. Now, I never really thought much of matching, but I've been rebuked by the text. <laughs> the old garment doesn't match because the old fabric is, is faded and, and now you've taken new fabric and you've placed it on there and now it's obvious that you've got a repaired garment. So the second illustration makes then the same point in a different way. So I want to take these two together, and then we'll, just, we'll decide what Jesus is, is getting at. The second picture has to do with wine and wine skins. Notice, again, no one puts new wine into old wine skins. When wine was produced, it would be put into skins that were containers made out of sheep skin or goat skin. And, and, and the new skins had a little bit of elasticity to them. They could kind of move uh, a, a little bit as the wine fermented and it released some gases. The new skins had some, some flex, some stretchability. But the old skins, they'd stretched to capacity. 
and they would often grow brittle. So if you put new wine into an old wineskin, you filled it up to the top and you sealed it, there's no room for those gases to go when the wine ferments. And, ferments. and so the old wineskin bursts, the wine is spilled onto the ground, and that container can no longer be used. And the mood of the story is, what a loss. You, you, you've got a double loss. You've got wine on the ground, and you've got wineskins that can't be opened. What, is, what a disaster. It's like getting your Route 44 cherry limeade and setting it down on something in your cup holder that punctures the bottom. Both are useless. You've got cherry limeade all over your truck, and you've got a cup that can't hold any liquid. It's bad. It's, it's a loss. Jesus emphasizes both the spilled wine and the busted wine skin. Again, when you try to mix the old with the new, both are destroyed. Both become useless. And so these two stories then work together to make one point, and gen- I'll, I'll give you kind of the general point, which you've caught already, and then I'll say what I think Jesus is, is getting at. The general point, the old is, compati- is incompatible with the new. When you try to mix the old with the new, both are destroyed beyond repair. But Jesus isn't saying everything new is automatically better than the old. He's saying what Jesus brings, the message, the, the path, it's better than the old. It's superior to the old and it's incompatible with uh, the old way. The new thing, then we might just, to make it easier in our minds, the new thing that Jesus brings that's incompatible with the old is the new covenant. The new thing that Jesus brings is, is the new covenant. The old covenant, characterized by the giving of the law and the promise of rewards for obedience, punishment or curses for disobedience, this old covenant, it had an expiration date. It was temporary by design. It was meant to wear out. It was meant to pass away. It's like the battery in your iPhone. It's, it's, it's designed to fail on you. And if it doesn't fail on you, they'll release an update that will ensure your battery fails on you. Your car has, has parts on it that they could, they could design it to last longer. They could design it to, be, to last 30 years, but they design it so that it wears out. And I'm not saying they have good motives, but I am going to say that's not all bad all the time because it ensures that new technology is rolling out. It ensures that safer and newer cars are on the road. And so the, the kind of the pushing in of the new is not always a bad thing as it pushes out the old. And this is what's true of the old covenant. It had an expiration date. It had an ending period. Jesus has arrived and the old covenant is passing away and he has come to institute an eternal covenant, the new covenant made effective by his death. The cup Jesus said, that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The new way of Jesus then is, but is to accomplish what the old covenant pointed to and pictured. Jesus has come to do what the old covenant by design could not do. God has done, Romans 8. God has done what the law 
weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. God has done what the law could not do by sending Jesus to die a sacrificial death and to be resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And so the whole book of Hebrews, the whole book of Hebrews is the superiority of Jesus over the old covenant. And so the author says, so don't go back. Don't go back. The old required daily sacrifices for sins over and over and over. But in the new, Jesus has laid down his life once for all. In the old, the the high priest could only uh, go into the holy of holies, the most holy place, once a year. In the new, Jesus has become the great high priest by which we might have access to the Father, that we might come confidently and boldly before the throne of grace. In the old covenant, sin was just pointed out and it was made evident by by man's inability to keep the law, to obey God. In the new, sin is dealt with decisively and we might be credited with the righteousness of Jesus as we turn to Christ in faith. So the old covenant, the law, they, they were shadows, Paul says in the book of Colossians, of which Christ is the substance. They were, they were just pointing forward to the real thing. They were signposts pointing to Jesus. And so Jesus brings a new way by fulfilling the old way. There would be those then in the early church that would be confronted by apostles. They were called Judaizers. And they wanted to mix the old with the new, and they thought it could be accomplished. Why don't we take a little bit of grace, but let's take the law too, and let's kind of make this uh, syncretistic thing. You can't do it. You cannot mix. You cannot patch over the old with the new. So we should say then, just to be clear, that the Old Testament, properly read and understood, points us to this moment. Jesus isn't denying the the reliability, the accuracy, the inspiration of the Old Testament, even the necessity of the Old Testament, but he's saying, I have come to do what the Old Testament has been telling you about and pointing you to and shadowing and prefiguring this whole time. But the Pharisees, they missed it. They missed it. So I believe that Jesus isn't obviously undermining the Old Testament, But he is seeking, I think, to undermine the way the Pharisees have taken the Old Testament. That if I can just keep this law and if I can even add to this law, then I will earn my own righteousness before God. They had implemented the Old Covenant in all the wrong ways. And so Jesus is pushing them and saying, this gospel of grace, this this new covenant, this mission for which I have come, it cannot simply be patched onto your view of works righteousness. They don't match. The gospel's too big to fit into an old wineskin. Jesus has not come to patch up their religious system. He comes with a radical message of grace and deliverance found in him that requires repentance and turning to him. So our goal is not to to assimilate Jesus into what we already consider a, a, a works righteousness system. When I was in 
middle school, you know, I didn't know the Lord. I had I'd never been to church, and yet I was living in Tennessee at the time. My dad was military, so we moved all the time. And, and so there was sort of this cultural, religiosity thing. And I would notice a lot of my friends, when somebody said or did something dumb, it was really, really common. Even in public schools, they would say, you need Jesus. But what they, what they meant was, you need Jesus to kind of come alongside you to help you not say and do dumb things. There was no sense in most of the people that I remember of, of any kind of heart change, any sort of understanding of the gospel. It was just sort of this cultural thing that Jesus will come alongside you and he'll, he'll help you be a better you. He'll help you to be more moral. He'll help you to watch your mouth. He'll help you to stop doing some of the things you want to stop doing. And Jesus does change those who follow him, but he hasn't come to just be an addition to our lives so that we might be better, more moral people. Jesus has come with an all-or-nothing agenda. Turn and follow me, or perish in your way. And so I would encourage you to consider the gospel of Christ this morning. He has come and he has, he has offered to you the forgiveness of sins in his work. His death and resurrection was him dying in our place as our substitute. Taking the wrath of God that I deserve because of my sin. And, and if I turn to him in faith, I throw myself at his mercy and I, I let go of my own sense of morality. I let go of my own sense of self-justification. And I turn to him and say, Jesus, you are my only hope. That, that then your sin will be credited to his work on the cross and his righteousness is then given to you. You might be seen as righteous. That is Jesus' agenda. Not to just clean us up a little bit. Sadly, many reject this. Including many in the crowd as Jesus is instructing them. And that's the point of the last statement, the third parable. It's, it's sort of a proverb here in verse 39. But new wine, or, or yeah, 39. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. No one, again, you notice the phrase, this is the third, third statement. No one wants new wine. When they are satisfied with old wine. Now this sounds a little counterintuitive if we, if we want to try to import every other passage we know about wine in Scripture and try to read into Jesus' proverb because we know that old wine is better than new wine. So what is Jesus saying? He just says he's brought something new and it sounds like he's saying old wine is better than new wine. And so we need to know that Jesus is not making that point, obviously, He's making a very clear point that they've grown accustomed to the old wine. They've grown accustomed to the old way. They've grown accustomed to the old garment. So they're not going to be attracted to the new way. If the crowd is satisfied with something old, they aren't going to try something new. Some of you... Don't try new things at restaurants. That's me. Why would I do that? I've already found the best thing on the menu. Or it's like the guy who insists, if, if it ain't broke, 
Don't fix it. But Jesus is coming saying, it's broke. I've brought a new way. They are rejecting Jesus in order to hold on to their old way. And their way is seeking to earn their acceptance and love before God through their own moral actions. One pastor said it this way, people stubbornly cling to their comfortable religious traditions and have little or no interest in the new, fresh, saving truth of the gospel. And this is obvious, that they're wanting to cling stubbornly to their tradition rather than turn to Christ. And it's obvious as the opposition to Christ increases and they seek to maintain their current status. So Jesus isn't saying, well, look, the old way is better than the new way. He's saying the opposite. You see, though it's true that old wine is usually better than new wine, there's one exception. Old wine is usually better than new wine, except when Jesus makes the wine. Except when Jesus makes the wine. There's a, in John chapter 2, there's a wedding at Cana. The wine runs out, and Mary turns to Jesus, and, you know, the wine running out is a problem. It would have been an absolute shame on the person throwing the party, so Mary's trying to, you know, she's a party planner, trying to get this figured out. Jesus says what? It's not yet my time. But in the end, he, he, he makes the new wine, And when they taste the new wine that Jesus has made, they say, oh, I cannot. Why did you withhold the best wine? We've been drinking this old stuff, but this is the best wine. Well, the answer is in that statement, it is not yet my time, Jesus says. His time to institute the new covenant of grace is coming, and he will pour out the new way, the new wine. You see, the religious crowd, they wanted to hold on to the old way. They wanted to drink the old wine. They wanted to wear the old garment. They wanted justification on the basis of their own sense of goodness. And Jesus came calling them to repentance. They were exalted in their own eyes above their neighbors. But Jesus preached the necessity of coming humbly and lowly to him, recognizing your own sense of sinfulness before a holy God. They wanted outward conformity to standards and rituals, and Jesus came to change hearts and to give people a new heart, to replace their heart of stone with a heart of flesh. They lived for man's approval, yet Jesus came and made a way for us to have the approval of God the Father. They wanted to compare themselves with others, and Jesus came to give us a righteousness that is not our own, so that we don't have to compare ourselves to our neighbor. The new is better than the old, so don't go back. Don't go back. Don't go back to the old way of life. Don't go back to the old way of self-righteousness. Don't go back to the old ways of thinking because the new is better than the old in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we are pulled by the flesh to go back. And so, Lord, would you strengthen us? Would you change our hearts? Would your word be drilled deep into our souls by your Spirit? that we might be different as we leave here, 
that we might be more settled in our salvation, more aware that we are credited with Christ's righteousness. May we rejoice in our salvation. May we anticipate the glorious return of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.